Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 47 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul Stands Before Agrippa, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 25, verse 23, through chapter 26, verse 32. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this is the third testimony of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in the book of Acts. Quite remarkable when you think about it. 28 chapters, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit measured out through Luke what he wanted written in the book of Acts. And he gives us three full testimonies of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. In this particular one, we're going to have an interesting phrase that we don't have any earlier too, where Jesus says to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And so we're going to talk about uh, how God worked to convert Saul and uh, specifically the things he says before Agrippa that point to the larger picture of Saul's conversion, of Paul's conversion, and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, Paul has a sense of the big picture and the hope uh, that God is working through the Jewish people and through the Messiah and now through him as the apostle to the Gentiles. So it's a pretty exciting chapter. Well, let me go ahead and read our passage that we'll be looking at today. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that, after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that... By being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice." For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Andy, in verse 23, how does Luke set this hearing in context? All right, so we have uh, Agrippa and Bernice coming in, uh, and so this entire defense in chapter 26 is made before them. And uh, because uh, they have a good understanding of the Jewish uh, background, um, Paul is able to speak in a way slightly different than some of his earlier defenses. Also, this gives me a, a sense of the, of the overarching purpose of Luke in presenting such detailed, accurate uh, accounts of Paul's trials. Um, I think it's part of him preparing a formal defense for Paul before Caesar so that again and again we can see there is no reason for him to be put to death. It's only the jealousy of the Jews and their hostility toward the Christian religion that Paul himself has done nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. And so you definitely get the sense of that. This trial actually occurred. These words were actually said, but Paul sorry, Luke wrote them down uh, as part of, I think, a preparation for Paul's defense in Rome. What practical problem does Festus have that he wants Agrippa to solve? Um, the practical problem, as I just mentioned, is he, I, I don't have any idea why the Jews are so angry at him, and I'm going to send him on to Caesar, but I have nothing to write to him. 
And Caesar's going to be, he, he's going to blame me. He says, what'd you send this guy uh, here? And you didn't even tell me what the charges are against him. Uh, as was said earlier, it's not our custom uh, to accuse or, or to arraign anyone or condemn anyone without a trial. And so I needed to have something to write. I don't understand the case. And so this sets up, I think, again, that purpose that Luke has under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to lay out the details of Paul's case to show that he is legally innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And so this whole thing plays into that purpose. The reason for the for the trial before uh, Agrippa and Bernice was so that Festus would have something he could write to Caesar. So you alluded to this earlier, but how does it help Paul that Agrippa has such knowledge of Jewish matters? Well, in in this sense, Paul is going to weave in uh, some language that will be very familiar to Agrippa uh, concerning the hope of our people and the prophets, and he alludes to it at the end. I know that you believe the prophets. Uh, I know that you do. And so the things I'm saying are true and reasonable based on the prophets. And so he's able to make more of a Jewish presentation of his own story and of the gospel to Agrippa as a result of Agrippa's Jewish background. How's the fact that Paul was a member of the strictest sect, as he mentions, the Pharisees, mm -hmm. help in his defense, and how does the fact that Paul had been so dramatically converted give evidence to the truthfulness of the gospel? Paul is going to allude again and again in, the, in his epistles to his uh, complete commitment to the law of Moses. He was not a lawless man. He was not a lawbreaker. Uh, he had the highest level Jewish credentials. And uh, he talks about this in Philippians. You know, whatever was to their profit or their credit, I have greater credentials than they do. He's going to do the same thing in Second Corinthians with the super apostles. He said, whatever their, their credentials, mine are greater. And so he does that to show that, honestly, uh, these things could not save. Um, he turns away from them aggressively in Philippians, saying, whatever was to my profit, I consider loss. And actually, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So his background as a Pharisee, zealous for the traditions of their people, um, shows very, very plainly how these things cannot save and that Paul understands them and has turned away from them in terms of his own salvation to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the hope in the promise made by God to our fathers that Paul mentions, and how does Paul say that it led to his trial? So I, I think that's an interesting question. Hope is uh, a sense of a bright future based on the promises of God. The Jewish people, it seems, in, in their messianic hope, so I, I think the simple answer is their hope was the Messiah, the son of David who would come. Um, their hope was of an earthly kingdom that would be glorious and militarily powerful over the Gentiles that would reign from sea to sea and would be a time of prosperity, seen generally agricultural, somewhat like the old covenant blessings. You'll be blessed when you come out and blessed when you go in. Their, your kneading trough will be blessed and your, and your womb will be blessed and your flocks and herds will be blessed and your crops will be blessed, agricultural blessing. I think they saw... Uh, this kind of rich, full, blessed kingdom coming under the messianic king, the son of David. We know that the hope is far greater than that because the fundamental problem is death. The fundamental problem is, is sin and death and being condemned by God. And as we saw when I was going through the book of Job, they don't have a really developed personal eschatology in the Old Testament. They, they don't have a full understanding of heaven and hell. 
And so ultimately, uh, we can see that the hope is in eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth through faith in the Messiah. But they, those, the the fullness of that revelation gets gets um, unfolded in the pages of the New Testament. So that's ultimately the hope. The hope is the Messiah. Now, Andy, you mentioned this, but in verse 8, as he often does, Paul mentions the resurrection. What is the connection here between what he's just said about this hope that he has and the resurrected Christ? Yeah, so I, I think it was it was Athanasius that said it more plainly than anyone. The, the the great heroes of the Old Testament did not have a clear understanding of resurrection of life beyond, beyond the grave. Mm. Jesus opened the grave for us all. Mm. Paul is standing on the other side of of that great resurrection event and is then able to look back at Psalm 16, able to look back at Job's experience and and say, okay, now I can see more clearly what it is that God intended. And why should it be considered incredible that God would raise the dead? He has raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is, in fact, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruit of a vast harvest of resurrected people. So it's a much more developed, detailed hope, but it was not in any way contradicted by the prophets. It just wasn't clearly laid out in the Old Testament. It was Jesus by his own resurrection that clearly unfolded the hope of resurrection from the dead. Now, in verses 9 through 11, Paul recounts his own life as a persecutor of uh, those who would hope in Christ. Paul mentions that when they were put to death, he cast his vote against them. What insight does this give us into Paul before his conversion, as well as the way the Jews went about persecuting the early church? Well, Paul really is the embodiment of the Jewish zealot that Jesus spoke about in warning his apostles. He said, uh, the time will come when those who put you out of the synagogue, persecute you, and even kill you will think they are doing service to God. Mm. And that's Paul embodied that. Paul thought he was serving God. He said, I thought it was my duty to oppose Jesus of Nazareth and to hunt down all his followers and persecute them. I thought I was serving God by doing that. Um, I did this out of a zealous uh, conviction, but it was a zeal without knowledge. I did not understand who Jesus really was. So that's that puts it in light. He he really was thought he he really thought he was serving God in the name of the laws of Moses by hunting Christians down and persecuting them. Andy, before we move to Paul's account of his conversion in verses 12 through 18, there's a word in verse 11 that is significant. Anytime we see this come up in scripture, we want to ask, what is it telling us about the occasion we're looking at? And that word is blaspheme. In verse 11, Paul says, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Mm. What's Paul talking about here and how does that relate to his own story? Yeah, all right. So first of all, we can set one thing aside. He was not trying to get them to speak words of blasphemy against Yahweh, against the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He would have been vigorously opposed to that, upholding the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. That would be to blaspheme. What was he talking about then? Well, to say something like Jesus is cursed, Mm. Jesus is under the curse of God. He says in Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is cursed speaking by the Spirit. That's an odd thing to say, except that that's a symbol of blasphemy. uh, Paul calls himself a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Mm. How did Paul blaspheme? How How did he, a zealous Pharisee, blaspheme? Well, he did it concerning the name of Jesus. And it's in the name of Jesus that we're saved. That's the essence of the blasphemy. By the way, it reminds me 
of the persecution that the shogunate in Japan uh, did against Japanese Christians in the early version, in the early uh, history of the spread of the gospel in Japan. They tried to make Japanese Christians sta uh, step on an image or icon of Jesus with their own feet. Now, these were Catholic Christians, so they used a lot of this, this kind of artwork, that, and true Christians would never do it. Mm. And so fundamentally, that's a picture of trying to force Christians to blaspheme, to defile Jesus, and to, you know, like the author of Hebrews says, to, to trample the Son of God underfoot, mm. that kind of thing. And so Paul's trying to get them to do that. Say Jesus is cursed. Say it. You know, he's forcing them with military or, or with uh, like physical threats and hauling them off to prison. I tried to force them to blaspheme. So that's what I think this word blasphemy means. And it really ascribes to the or it draws from the deity of Christ. Jesus is Lord. And to try to get to, uh, people to say Jesus is cursed is the exact opposite. Hmm. On the heels of this description of his opposition to and persecution of the church, Paul gives his conversion account in verses 12 through 18. And you mentioned this, but this is the third time that this account has been given. Why does Luke put such emphasis on Paul's conversion story? Well, I think Paul does it himself in 1 uh, Timothy. He says, effectively, if we could just sum it all up into one concept. If God can convert me, he can convert anyone. That's basically what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Look, that that I, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, I could be converted. I'm an example that gives hope to everybody, mm. gives hope to all evangelists and missionaries. Look, if Paul can be converted, God can convert anyone. Mm. And so even somebody somebody that's breathing out murderous threats, somebody who is, we still pray for them. We still have hopes for them because look what happened with Paul. And so I think the Holy Spirit makes much of, of Paul's conversion to give hope to all evangelists. I mean, overall, the book of Acts is to, is part of the, the Holy Spirit giving power to witnesses to the ends of the earth. Mm. And so you have 28 chapters that when you read them, you're inspired. Fill with hope, fill with zeal. It's like, I want to be part of this. I want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And look at this. We get three accounts of the most unlikely possible conversion. If God can convert this man, he can convert anyone. So that's why I think he does it. Also, as I mentioned, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, right now, there are new details. Um, there's, there's extra aspects that were not recorded the first time. One of the key differences that you just mentioned between this narrative and the two earlier ones in chapter 9 and chapter 22 is found in verse 14. It says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a sharpened stick fixed on the back of a plow, which trained a beast of burden, let's say an ox, not to kick back at the master. Mm-hmm. What were the goads in Saul's life? What were they teaching him to do? And what does Christ's statement teach us about his compassion for persecutors? It's just an overwhelmingly significant statement. Um, it really is. All right, putting it simply, God works on unconverted elect people before they're converted. Hmm. He's active on them. He puts thoughts in their minds. He puts convictions that are short of, con of full conviction for sin. He puts things in place like like the tumblers in a, in a combination lock. It's not going to open for another year, but little by little by little, things are getting put into place. Mm. Now, this is no uh, comfort or consolation to people who are under conviction of the Holy Spirit that they can wait for a year to be converted. They don't know if they'll be alive tomorrow. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. But the fact of the matter is there is a process that leads to conversion. We also see it in that great parable in Mark chapter 4, which is only in Mark's gospel. Um, 
the uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who scattered seed on, on on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, mm. the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel of the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, I argued when I preached that, that because this man's sleeping and doesn't know how it grows, it's not Jesus. And yet he's the one that puts the sickle to it. So therefore, the harvest must not be death or the second coming or the end of the age. It must be uh, the person's spiritual harvest, as in John chapter 4, the fields are white for harvest. So the idea is there is a growth process before the spiritual harvest. Mm. And the goads are part of that. Goads are inducements leading to conversion. In Saul's case, I believe it comes down initially to the persuasions and biblical argumentation of Stephen. Stephen was a phenomenal witness, a brilliant man. We have an example of his teaching in Acts 7. It says in Acts 6, they could not refute him or the, the, the spirit by which he spoke. And, and it's pretty clear that, that Saul was part of that synagogue of the freedmen that was debating and disputing with Stephen but couldn't win the debate. So there are certain arguments from Scripture and from the prophets that must have stuck with Paul, and he couldn't shake them, and they just pressed on him. And so little by little, he began to wonder, maybe I'm on the wrong side. Like Gamaliel, his mentor, had said, you know, you may find yourself fighting against God. That might have been a goad. It's like you could be on the wrong side here. Hmm. And so now suddenly this whole thing gets shattered by Jesus in glory with light shining brighter than the sun saying, why do you persecute me? Hmm. You're fighting against me. And then the compassion of Jesus saying, hey, look, this whole thing's hard for you, isn't it? You're fighting it. You're kicking against the goat. Stop it. It's hurting you. I don't want you to be hurt anymore. It's time for you to come over. Hmm. So it's just a beautiful, beautiful moment. And so for me, what do, what do I do with that? I pray for goads in people's lives. We, you talk about people that you share the gospel with, their family members, their neighbors, coworkers. They're as yet unconverted. You've already reasoned with them many times. Pray that God would use goads in their lives. Things would bother them. Let me give you an example. I was sharing the gospel with a, with a, a guy on the plane. We had a great conversation. He was very interested, but he wasn't ready to convert. And, you know, he pushed back on some things, but it was an amicable pushing back and it was an amicable conversation. At the end, as we were in our final approach and, uh, you know, we we're putting our tray tables up in there, lock position and all that, I said to him, I knew we were out of time. I said, I'm going to pray for you tonight that you will be unable to sleep because of the things we've been talking about. Now, I've never heard back from that guy, but that's a goad. Hmm. When you can't sleep and you can't shake the things that you're that, that were discussed, that's, those are goads. Hmm. How does Paul describe the ministry to which Christ called him? And what's the significance of the statement, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision? Hmm. Well, you know, who are you, Lord? One of the great statements there is in the entire Bible. I don't know who you are, you know. But it's a very different thing than when Pharaoh said, I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. He's, he's saying, I want to know you. And he's still, you know, you could say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's like he's still saying, who are you? But in, in, I want to know more. Mm. So who are you, Lord? I know you're Lord, 
but I want to know you better. And so just to know him, just to know his will, uh, that's what he said to Ananias. I have appointed him to know the Lord and to know his will and to serve him. And so he says, I'm Jesus. Okay, that shattered it. I suppose I was I was against that name. I was against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Well, to make it clear, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, and I'm radiant, shining like the sun. What does that tell you? So he knows he's on the wrong side. And he says, no, get up and stand on your feet. I have work for you to do. He says, I have appeared to you to appoint you as, in my version, it says, a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. Mm. All right. So of what you have seen of me is my glory, my deity, my life, the fact that I'm alive after the crucifixion, that I have been raised from the dead. You are a witness of me, my identity, my death and my resurrection, and also what I will show you. So new doctrines, new ideas that will be written in the book of Romans <laughs> and other places. You are a witness and a servant of them. You are a servant, my servant, and a servant of the truth. So that's a very detailed calling of Paul as an apostle. Apostles were not just messengers, but revelators. They revealed new doctrines and new truths. And so he said, you are a servant. So I've got things for you to do. And I'm going to send you Uh, to the Gentiles and your own people. And your task will be to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And why? So that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among all those who are sanctified through faith in me. That's the calling. It's salvation. He's talking about salvation, forgiveness of sins. And so light comes to their minds. That's truth, regeneration. They're rescued from the dominion of Satan, dominion of darkness. They're brought over into the kingdom of the beloved son and they have a place with me. They're going to be with me where I am and they will see my glory. And you, Paul, are my servant to that end. And Paul says that upon hearing that, upon receiving this vision, he wasn't disobedient to it, but yeah. obeyed all that Christ would call yeah, him to. I want to talk about that. I, I, it's, we are commanded to be witnesses. We're not just asked if we want to be. And so... I don't want to be disobedient to that. It stands mm. over me every day. And I feel that I'm frequently disobedient to it. Um, but I know in general, I've not been disobedient to it. I've shared the gospel with many people. I preach every week the the gospel. I yearn to not be disobedient to that calling. As Paul says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And in verse 20, he also includes part of his message that he delivered uh, being th- this idea of repentance resulting in action. Sure. What's the connection between repentance and lifestyle change? Yeah, you get this clear connection um, in John the Baptist's preaching ministry. He said he called them to repent. It was a baptism of repentance. He said, um, you know, repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So part of repentance is a new a new way of living. So think about Zacchaeus. Uh, and Zacchaeus was genuinely converted because Jesus put a stamp on him. And if Jesus says salvation's come, uh, Zacchaeus has been genuinely converted mm. and he must have followed through with the things he pledged to do. And in Zacchaeus's case, as a chief tax collector, it meant giving money back. He literally paid back fourfold from any that he had, he had defrauded. And he must have defrauded many people because he was a chief tax collector. And so I think the idea is, you know, if you're a prostitute, you stop doing that. You don't continue in that lifestyle. Uh, it's just prove your repentance by your new life. Uh, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what Paul is talking about. So you're right. He gives a quick summation of the work of the gospel here. They should repent, 
turn to God and live a new life, walk in newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. What reason does Paul then give for the Jewish opposition to his ministry? And how does he summarize his message and ministry in verses 22 and 23? Well, because he went to the Gentiles, that is why the Jews opposed me. And they're now just stepping into the, the, the role he had earlier. I was convinced that I should do everything I could to oppose Jesus of Nazareth and his followers. Now they're doing the same thing. That's why they're persecuting me. So Paul's own prior persecution and their now present persecution is a very clear answer to why they were so hostile to him and why he was on trial. I haven't done anything wrong. They don't like the doctrine. They don't like the gospel. Other than that, they have nothing against me. I've not stolen, I've not murdered, I've not attacked anyone, I've not done, I've preached and tried to be kind to people and do good works, et cetera. And now I'm on trial because they don't like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. So that's become crystal clear. And then uh, Luke, writing in the end of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear for any that would read this account in Rome. That's why this man is on trial. It's not because he did anything wrong. And so that's why they're trying to kill him. And with that, the remainder of the chapter is really the reaction of Agrippa and Festus to Paul's defense. What initial reaction does Festus have to Paul's defense, and how does Paul handle this reaction? You're out of your mind. You're crazy. <laughs> your great learning has driven you insane. And it's like, it's it's amazing. But, you know, I think it also goes back to uh, the statement made earlier in, in this very book in Acts. The men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. It's like, no, no, no. The world was upside down. They've made it right side up. Mm -hmm. And if you are an upside down person living in an upside down world and along comes someone who's right side up and they're telling you, you need to be right side up by your frame of reference, they're out of their mind. And so Jesus must have seen the most insane person ever because he mm -hmm. was the only perfectly upright person in a perfectly upside down world. And so he's just saying, Paul seems insane, but Paul's not coming off as one who's insane. He shouldn't be surprised because the master of the house was called Beelzebub, and they said that it was by Satan that he was doing all of his teachings. But then others would say, these are not the words of a man possessed by a demon. Hmm. You, wanna, you wanna know what a demon-possessed man looks like? Look at that guy, Legion, who was naked and howling at the moon and screaming like an animal. But Jesus is making is teaching parables. He's making connections with Old Testament prophecies. He's speaking truth. And now Paul was doing the same thing. He said, look, I'm not out of my mind. Actually, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. And the thing he says here that's so um, amazing, those, those statements, true and reasonable or rational, mm -hmm. there is a reasonableness to Christianity. It goes beyond reason, but it is reasonable. And so we can take logic and use it. We should use logic in doing exegesis and doing interpretation of scripture, but it does go beyond reason too. How does it go beyond reason? Beyond reason, we have information by revelation that cannot be reasoned out. It is handed to us as true. And then we put two and two together and logically put theology together. That's how that works. So it is reasonable then. If Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then it is reasonable to think that such a powerful God who could create everything ex nihilo out of nothing could make the Red Sea crossing happen. That's small for him. If, he can, if he's creating cosmos and stars <laughs> to cut open a gash in the sea, no big deal. And so that's actually reasonable. That's how it works, true and reasonable. 
Paul then turns to reach out to King Agrippa. How does he do that? And how can meditating on Paul's boldness before Agrippa give us boldness to declare the gospel and urge people to repentance? Yeah, this is a very important point, Wes. I'm glad you're bringing it up. And it's something I need to remember as as a preacher. I need at some point in my sermon to make direct appeals to people. And and when I'm preaching to 500 people, it's people in different categories. Now, let me say something to you, you fathers. Let me say something to, to mothers. Let me say a word now to teens. Let me say something to any that are here that have come in rejecting the gospel, but you came here because you're invited by a friend. Mm. You're making a direct appeal, and I think it's necessary. So he does that here with King Agrippa. King Agrippa, you know, I'm reaching out to you, and he says, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I mean, that's, that's pretty <laughs> <Bold>. direct. <laughs> <Bold>. <laughs> right. And, and then I think mm. reading between the lines, I think this is exactly what he did with Nero. Mm. At my first defense, 2 Timothy 4, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me, the gospel might be, listen to this, fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. When Christ sent Ananias, he said, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name, my name before the Gentiles and their kings. So putting it all together, I can definitely see Paul saying, so now, Emperor Nero, I am appealing to you directly. Repent of your sins and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out and you might spend eternity with God in heaven and not burning in hell. Hmm. (laughs) Imagine saying that to Nero, uh, just the boldness. But here he's got a little more sympathetic uh, hearer, King Agrippa. Um, Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. How does Agrippa respond to Paul in verse 28? And what do we make of Paul's reaction to Agrippa in verse 29? Do you think that in this little time that we've had here, you're going to make me become a Christian? Uh, So, you know, in, in such a short time, do you think it can happen? Like it could. I mean, God sometimes works very quickly. Think of the thief on the cross. Mm. It's not impossible that in a short time somebody can be brought to repentance. And so Paul answers saying, look, doesn't time frame, short time or long, doesn't matter. I wish you would. Mm. I wish that you everyone listening to me would become as I am, not counting these chains. Mm. So the chains are an issue. We're on trial here so I can be freed from the chains. And I want to be freed from my chains. I want the freedom to go out and live my life and preach the gospel. But in any case, What I wish is that you, whether it takes a short time or long, would become a Christian. How does this account end in verses 30 through 32? And what final thoughts do you have on this remarkable passage we've looked at today? Well, we are privy to a private conversation. You know, how else would we have the omniscient author, um, you know, in scripture and he knows things. And so there's this this conversation that's held between the governor, Festus, and uh, and Agrippa and Bernice. And and they're going out, they, they go out together and they do make this statement. Again, this fits into the practical human level purpose for this portion of the book of Acts. This man has done nothing that deserves a death or imprisonment, okay? That should be, Caesar, your verdict, okay? That's, it's so clear as you read it. It's like again and again, we have these legal statements. He has done nothing wrong. Hmm. So I feel like that's the purpose of at least the last third of the book of Acts. But Agrippa then says to Festus, if this man had not appealed to Caesar, he could have been set free. But that's another way of saying the same thing. Hmm. He's innocent. Hmm. And so it's interesting, too. It raises questions about providence. Oh, I wish Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar. 
but God wanted him to appeal to Caesar. God wanted him to cross the Mediterranean Sea and make his way up to the Italian boot and get to Rome. He wanted the gospel in Rome and wanted Paul to bring it. And so we may be wistful and if only and all that, but it was part of God's plan. Andy, any final thoughts for us as we conclude today? What a marvelous chapter and what an incredible thing that the sovereign grace of God can convert someone like Saul of Tarsus. And we should take away from that the encouragement. If God can convert this man, he can convert anyone. And we should also pray for God to put goads in the lives of loved ones who have not yet come to Christ. Well, this has been episode 47 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. I want to invite you to join us next time for episode 48 entitled The Shipwreck where we'll discuss Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 44. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.